This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. Even if you've been fully vaccinated, you may want to keep your mask on as this year's cold and flu season comes to a nasty start. Over 800 cases of respiratory illness, RSV, or respiratory syncytial virus have been reported across Wisconsin, according to state health officials. During the past two years of the coronavirus pandemic, mask wearing and social distancing have kept serious cases of cold and flu low, but have also left many people with lower immunity to RSV due to lack of exposure to the virus. Currently, fewer than 20% of the state's residents have received this year's flu vaccine, prompting health officials and hospitals to prepare for a large influx of patients experiencing respiratory illness, reports Wisconsin State Journal. The state's Natural Resources Board approved the final portion of a 56,000-acre land conservation easement deal yesterday. The deal, which is worth one, er, the deal, which is worth 15.5 million dollars, is the largest in state history. The bulk of the money for the purchase comes from a federal forest legacy grant and the state Knowles Nelson Stewardship Program. According to Wisconsin Public Radio, the 56,000-acre area, known as Pelican River Forest, is the most recent in a series of easement acquisitions meant to conserve lands in Wisconsin for recreational activities. Previous efforts at large land purchases for conservation have met opposition from Republican lawmakers who objected to taking large areas of private land off the tax roll in rural northern counties, This new purchase will remain private land, but will be open to public use. The State Department of Natural Resources will begin requiring cities across Wisconsin to test their water for PFAS. The so-called family of forever chemicals have been linked to a slew of negative health effects. After November 1st, cities with populations over 50,000 people will, will be required to test their water supplies for PFAS, reports Channel 3000. Towns with populations between 10 and 50,000 people will be required to test their water quality starting February 1st and smaller communities by May 1st. This is due to logistical challenges in areas where individual households have their own wells. Republican Governor candidate Tim Michaels is facing a lawsuit from nonprofit health system Freightert after refusing to edit out the group's logo from his political ads. As a nonprofit organization, Freightert is not allowed to participate in political activity. Doing so would violate their tax-exempt status. The organization previously filed a cease and desist order with the Michaels campaign following an ad which featured footage of Michael making a donation to a cancer research center associated with Freightert. The Michaels campaign has had agreed to stop airing the ad, but later informed the health system that it would continue to air, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. The lawsuit is currently on hold as both parties attempted to reach an agreement. Members of Madison's Urban Development Commission are expressing significant concerns over a proposal to erect an apartment development along Sherman Avenue near Tinney Park and the Yahara River. The building plans from Vermilion Development proposed replacing an existing two-story office building with four large office apartment complexes. 
At an informal meeting last night, members of the commission appeared not convinced. Some were even aghast at the size of the development among the neighborhood and the location of the building in an area susceptible to flooding, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The city of Madison is warning that ratepayers may see some changes to the options provided by their water utility provider. That's after the Public Service Commission's approval of the Madison Water Utilities rate case application submitted last year. The application will allow the utility to introduce customer assistance programs for low-income families and keep rate increases at an annual 7% below the inflation rate for the average customer, according to the utility. Other measures included in the application will focus on its debt reduction. The program is included in the city's 2023 budget, which is still under deliberation by the Common Council. And now on to today's top stories. With less than two weeks until the fall election, healthcare workers and medical students joined a crowd of around 100 people at the steps of the state capitol today to hand deliver a letter to Republicans. The letter calls Wisconsin abortion ban dangerous to Wisconsin patients, as well as the state's healthcare industry as a whole. WORT producer Nick Wiegehout has more. Around 100 nurses, healthcare workers, medical students, elected officials, and other protesters gathered at the state capitol today to protest the state's 19th century abortion ban. There, they marched to the Republican headquarters on East Johnson Street to deliver a letter telling the party that the abortion ban will only hurt Wisconsin's healthcare industry. The march was organized by a coalition of healthcare workers and abortion activists, including the SEIU Nurses Union, UW Medical Students for Choice, and the Madison Abortion and Reproductive Rights Coalition for Healthcare, or MARCH. Before today's march, elected officials and healthcare workers spoke on the steps of the state capitol to say why they were against Wisconsin's abortion ban. Starting these speeches was Dr. Kristen Lyerly, an OBGYN here in Wisconsin. She says that she supports legal abortion access because, simply put, abortion is health care. And we understand better than anyone that abortion care is part of the spectrum of pregnancy care. From fertility treatment to miscarriage management to caring for women with complicated pregnancies. Abortion isn't the binary choice that politicians would have you make. You're for or against. No. Abortion is fundamental health care. Next to speak was State Treasurer Sarah Godlewski. She touted Governor Tony Evers and Attorney General Josh Call's record when it comes to abortion rights here in Wisconsin. She says that if they aren't re-elected in November, the state's abortion ban is almost certain to stand. We hear every single election that this is the most important election of our lifetime. But I want to change the way that we talk about it. This is the most consequential election of our lifetime. 
Republican candidate for Governor Tim Michaels has called the abortion ban, quote, an exact mirror, end quote, of his own position on abortion, though he later rolled back that statement, saying he would sign a bill that provides exceptions for rape or incest. GOP Attorney General candidate Eric Toney, meanwhile, says that he would like to give district attorneys the power to cross county lines to prosecute doctors providing abortions, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Next to speak was Julie Shigelski, a second-year medical student at the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. She says that under Wisconsin's abortion ban, she is concerned about the future quality of her own education. I'm terrified that I will not be properly trained in comprehensive reproductive health care and that this will ultimately harm my future patients. Beyond this, abortion care plays a critical role in the education of obstetrics and gynecology residents and is a requirement for a fully accredited residency program. If abortion care is now illegal in Wisconsin, how can OBGYN residents obtain the necessary training that they will need to go on and provide care in the future? Those educational barriers will have long-term consequences, says Tessa Nicole Muir, a second-year medical student and co-leader of the school's Medical Students for Choice chapter. Wisconsin already has the worst racial disparities in maternal mortality in the country. Our state has for years been an OB-GYN desert. We just don't have enough health care providers to meet the needs of our patients. This law will make that health care shortage so much worse. The final speaker was Hanan Jabril, a postpartum technician at Meritor Hospital. She says that restricting abortion access is an issue that will affect everyone. Uh, Abortion affects everybody. It's a queer and trans issue. And for me, it's a religious issue too. As a Muslim, I know that abortion is my God-given right and a gift of divine love and mercy. It was then time for the march. Chanting as they marched, the group made their way to East Johnson Street to deliver a letter to Ron Johnson, Tim Michaels, Eric Toney, and the rest of the Wisconsin Republican Party. As Republican Party workers watched from behind the glass door, they read their letter aloud before taping it to the front door amid approving honks from drivers. Government-forced birth puts the lives of our patients in danger. The law is so unclear that it will require patients to carry dangerous pregnancies to term, in many cases causing lifelong medical problems, disability, and death. The fall election takes place on November 8th. You can register at the polls on Election Day. Early voting is open at various times and location through Madison and Wisconsin and continues through November 6th, the Sunday before the election. You can register at an early voting location through Friday, November 4th. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wookiehout. Now, 6.17 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
Fellowship Farm, a rural co-op in Fitchburg, was an early example of cooperative living, a movement that's been a part of Madison's character for over a century and is likely to expand in the coming years with help from city funding and grassroots developers. Housing cooperatives are typically large houses with 10 to 30 members, each of whom pays a portion of the the house's maintenance costs, takes on cooking and cleaning jobs, and votes on decisions such as whether to accept a new member. Seeger Gray wrote about Fellowship Farms earlier this month for the Capital Times. This is an audio version of Gray's story. You can read the story for yourself at captimes.com. The first word I learned to spell was co-op, C-O-P. Charlie Uphoff, my grandfather, lives on a small farm in Fitchburg. Born in 1944, he grew up there with his parents and the pacifists, summer campers, and people displaced by World War II who temporarily found a home at Fellowship Farm. The rural co-op was an early and enthusiastic advocate of cooperative living, a movement that's been part of Madison's character for over a century and is likely to expand in the coming years with help from city funding and grassroots developers. Housing cooperatives are typically large houses with 10 to 30 members, each of whom pays a portion of the house's maintenance costs, takes on cooking and cleaning jobs, and votes on decisions such as whether to accept a new member. One of the biggest appeals of co-ops is their affordability. According to the Madison Area Cooperative Housing Alliance's data from 2020, living at a Madison co-op costs on average $426 per month, while the average market rate apartment in Madison costs over $1,400 per month, a price that the city's 2022 housing snapshot report says most renters can't afford. David Sparer has practiced cooperative law for 42 years after living in a housing co-op as a University of Wisconsin-Madison student. He says that many co-op members join primarily for the affordable price and stay for the community they find. Then they start realizing what the potential of it is. Uh, And then if they stay there a while, they learn all about you know, how a co-op works and how to get along with people and do things collectively. At Hypatia, a housing cooperative near the Capitol, 12 members share meals, decisions, and living spaces. Steve Vig has lived at Hypatia since 2014. It's kind of like having a tight-knit neighborhood in a way that I think very few people get to experience anymore. Um, it, It reminds me of the way my grandmother and great-grandmother talked about their little Italian neighborhood in New Jersey, where, of course, everybody knew all the neighbors, and you could watch each other's kids and bring each other food if you were not feeling well. Um, And now I have that. Eric Upchurch has lived at Hypatia since 2017. It's community. It's challenging. It flexes all the interpersonal, you know, uh, communication muscles. According to Sparer, Madison has long been a hub for housing co-ops due to Wisconsin's well-defined cooperative laws and interest from UW-Madison students. Hypatia itself is an example of Madison's long cooperative history. 
The co-op that became Hypatia, after three new buildings and two new names, was once Groves Women's Co-op. Founded in 1943 by UW-Madison students looking for an affordable alternative to sorority housing. The co-op was named after Professor Harold Groves, an advocate for cooperatives, and a shareholding member of a more political project, Fellowship Farm. Fellowship Farm was a cooperative, started in 1941 by the Madison chapter of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, and initially located in Prairie de Sac, as Norman Upoff, Charlie's brother who also grew up on the farm, explained. The National Pacifist Organization feared that World War II might have a repeat of the World War I experience, when pacifists were persecuted, often fired from their jobs. After Fellowship Farm's few long-term residents and a team of Quaker volunteers restored its degraded farmland and dilapidated house, the co-op became a place for pacifist organizations to hold meetings and for visitors to stay the night. According to records from the Wisconsin Historical Society, Fellowship Farm and its neighbors exchanged equipment and labor, providing opportunities to discuss current events and raise interest in pacifism and cooperatives. Like any co-op, Fellowship Farm was owned and democratically controlled by its members. In 1944, its elected board of directors decided to move the co-op from its original Prairie de Sac location to the rundown farm in Fitchburg, where it was more accessible to its Madison members and visitors. One of Fellowship Farm's educational programs was a summer camp for children of pacifist parents, run mostly by Walter and Mary Jo Upoff, Charlie and Norman's parents, who were founding members of the co-op. Surrounded by crops and cattle, the camp's group discussions centered on topics like the horrors of World War II, racism against black and Japanese Americans, and the value of cooperatives. At the final camp in 1945, members introduced the group to visitors from Madison, including a reverend, a rabbi, and Velma Hamilton, the first president of the Madison NAACP. Also assisting with camp activities and discussions were temporary farmhands Andy Noda, a Californian farmer involved with the Fellowship of Reconciliation, and William Horry, who would become a major advocate of reparations for survivors of American internment camps. Noda and Horry were two of a small number of Japanese Americans who stayed at Fellowship Farm after being released from internment camps at a time of widespread anti-Japanese racism. In a 1982 interview with Walter and Mary Jo, Mary Jo said that one of Fellowship Farm's most important goals was to be a refuge for people with few other options. We were just a house by the side of the road. We took in people who came along. Charlie said the farm's diverse cast of guests gave him a unique upbringing. The kitchen table was a, a sort of a play, gathering place for family and friends and whoever stopped by, and there were often conversations or discussion of politics or other kinds of issues that were a, a part of our edu education growing up. In 1951, the co-op's board of directors decided that too few of the farm's active members lived nearby to continue making decisions as a group, selling the land to Walter and Mary Jo, as Walter explained in the 1982 interview. Since we had worked and all these years for very little pay, um, they decided to give us first chance to buy it. 
1998, Charlie moved back onto the land in Fitchburg that he said he still thinks of as Fellowship Farm. 71 years after the co-op dissolved, his modest gardens and orchards are a gathering place for his extended family. Fellowship Farm was an experiment in activism, education, and cooperative living, part of the ecosystem of cooperatives that Madison has sustained for decades before and after. Recent policy changes could make Madison even more hospitable to cooperative housing and help present-day co-op advocates put new ideas into reality. In early 2021, the city allowed housing co-ops to form in more residential areas and apply for affordable housing funds, changes that Sparer and local cooperative organizations pushed for and helped design. Three weeks after the change, the Madison City Council approved a $688,149 loan for Regenerate Housing Cooperative, a 25-unit co-op that will take up two buildings on Jennifer Street. Co-developer Abby Davidson said Regenerate should be open to members by March 2023. Regenerate is committed to permanently affordable units, multi-bedroom units for families, and an ADA-accessible unit. Davidson said ongoing renovations include installing rooftop solar panels and a charging garage for shared electric cars. I would say we're, we're about to hit a new renaissance of, of co-op, co-op creation and co-op development. I think there's, there's really unprecedented unprecedented demand for, for housing cooperatives in Madison. Even though Regenerate won't be open to members until next year, Davidson said she gets emails all the time from people interested in joining. Another planned cooperative is looking to expand housing co-ops outside the Isthmus. Three members of Nottingham Cooperative, with help from the developers of Regenerate, secured a city loan in June for $551,000 to help them buy and renovate a house in the South Park Street area. Frida Ballard, a graduate student at UW-Madison, is part of the effort to establish the new co-op, which will be named Zapata. Ballard currently lives at Nottingham mainly because she can't afford an apartment, but said she values the community that housing co-ops provide. I think it's good for my mental health to live with people. Um, I think that's how we're meant to live. Ballard and other Nottingham residents had concerns about the membership process at Nottingham and other co-ops. She said attending multiple house dinners and a membership interview can be an extra burden on people who work late hours, don't live on the isthmus, or don't speak English as a first language. The zoning and funding change last year made it legally and financially possible for the group to plan their own cooperative in the South Park Street area, where there are currently no active housing co-ops. The group has until next June to buy a house to begin renovating, after which Ballard said she will live at Zapata until enough new members have joined. I hope to make many more of these <laughs> in the future. When more and more people have trouble finding homes, cooperators like Ballard and Davidson intend to build on Madison's tradition of forming democratic communities. If we can manage to do this once, we can manage to do this again.
quotes from Walter and Mary Jo Upoff came from their 1982 interview with Catherine Coberly for the Wisconsin Democratic Party Oral History Project. Wisconsin Historical Society, Audio 1030A-6-8. It's 6.33 p.m. And you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host, Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. Every other Thursday, our contributor, Jonah Chester, sits down with Tom Kamenick, president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, to discuss open records and open government. This week, on a special election-themed episode of Transparency Talk, they examined the role the Wisconsin Attorney General plays in the state's open government laws. Now, quick note that this conversation isn't specific legal advice, so seek an attorney's assistance if you have difficulty with open records or open government. All right, it is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line, as is tradition, by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how are you holding up today? Well, Jonah, I, I think I'm going to make it through the next couple of weeks, but it's going to be rough. Mm-hmm. I cannot escape the political ads, Tom. They are everywhere. I thought, you know, I don't have broadcast TV. They can't find me. They found me on YouTube. Then they found me on Hulu and Discovery Plus. I can't escape them. Uh, but like you See, said, I'm in a really bad spot because the only broadcast TV I ever watch is Jeopardy. Oh, no. <laughs> Every night oh, when no. I'm home. But the problem with Jeopardy is that only old people watch Jeopardy and old people vote a lot. So the Jeopardy commercial breaks are just literal nonstop campaign ads. Uh, yeah, it's fall in Wisconsin. The leaves are changing. People are carving pumpkins. The political ads are inescapable. And, you know, we're just going to pile on today because we're actually talking about the election, too, in particular because one of the uh, one of the races on your ballot during this coming election will be the race for attorney general. We're focusing on the role the attorney general plays in government transparency. Tom, take me from there. You know, how does how does the AG influence, you know, open records and open government policies? Yeah, theoretically, the attorney general should have a very active role in transparency in the state. Um, and they certainly talk like they do during during election time, which is kind of the case for all politicians. They all love transparency and accountability until they're actually in office. But uh, unfortunately, we have a long history of attorney generals in the state doing very little with transparency. What exact powers do they have? If they wanted to do something, what could they do? So the AG is the, the chief law enforcement officer, and it's some criminal work, it's some civil work, it's some representing the state in litigation. But they've got about four things that, uh, that the attorney general can do with transparency laws. First, they're empowered to enforce the open meetings law and the open records law. They can also provide official formal legal opinions to political officials who ask also offer uh, more informal advice, usually via letters on records and meetings law issues to anybody. And of course, the attorney general runs the Department of Justice. It's one of the biggest state agencies. And the DOJ gets tons and tons of record requests. And in the the attorney general's kind of responsible in the end for for making sure they're responded to well. Mm. So when was the last time an attorney general actually like enforced an open record or open meeting law? 
Oh, it's been a really long time. The last one was Peg Lautenschlager. And this was also just a very political case. She uh, brought a records lawsuit against a set of Republican lawmakers. She herself was a Democrat. And that was the last time. That was 20 some years ago. Hmm. So it's been quite it's been quite a while since they had to break out the like brass knuckles and actually say, hey, I'm, I'm the enforcer. I'm here to take you to task for not following this rule. DOJ litigates a lot of different things. You see a lot of press releases from the agency about bringing enforcement actions against you know, polluters and uh, uh, companies that discriminate in the workplace, things like that. The big probe into Catholic sex abuse scandal recently from Call, right? But they never enforce the open records laws and open meetings laws. And you mentioned it a minute ago, but they can also issue legal opinions, correct? Yeah, these are pretty nice because they're formal and they they don't have the force of law, but courts treat them really, really seriously. But the problem is that ordinary citizens can't request a formal opinion. Only it usually comes from local officials who have a question about how state law works. Hmm. But while normal citizens can't request an opinion, uh, the next category they might actually be able to get something from, and that's advice. Yeah, so this is all routed through what's called the Office of Open Government, or OOG. This was created in 2015 uh, when uh, Attorney General Brad Schimmel was in office in conjunction with former Governor Walker. And they put out uh, compliance guides, fairly detailed but also fairly approachable reference books for the Records Law and Meetings Law that uh, anybody can use. They're free on on OOG's website, Office of Open Government. And the other big thing is they do answer letters from people asking questions, ordinary citizens wanting to know things about the open records law or open meetings law. And typically that's a, uh, my local school board is not turning over records kind of questions things. Mm -hmm. Now, it's a good role, but it's of limited use, unfortunately. If you read through these letters, you'll start to realize they almost all read the same. There's usually... Usually they're about 90% boilerplate. That's all comes from those compliance guides. And it's good information. It's accurate. It's fairly thorough about the basics of open records and meetings laws, but it doesn't usually help very much with the specific situation the person has a question about. They're, these letters rarely give any concrete answer to the people who, who write the letters asking for help. They often say, well, we don't have enough information to determine whether or not there was a violation here. Well, they could investigate, they have that power and, and, and find out more, but they usually don't. A lot of times they'll just say, well, it's not clear whether or not there's a violation. Um, usually the best response somebody can hope for is it'll say in the letter that they've reached out to the record custodian, made them aware of the issues, and we've been told that they'll be providing the records to you soon. So sometimes you do get a little call on your behalf say, to somebody saying, hey, turn over the records. But the real big problem with all of this Currently, it's taking about a year to get an answer to your letter. Huge amount of time. There's not a huge flood of these. There's only a handful of letters sent to the to the AG's office uh, every month. So they're not getting a flood. They just take forever to do them. So you're waiting forever to get them, but you're just getting boilerplate. And most of the time, you're better off going to the compliance guide instead. That's a, that's a recent trend, too. It, it used to take like four to six months to get answers to these. Now it's usually over a year. It's gotten almost useless. Hmm. And then finally, as a government agency, the Department of Justice, which is, as we mentioned before, under the attorney general, has to fulfill records requests about its operations. Correct. And they used to be 
kind of bad about it. Uh, after the Office of Open Government was created, we saw a very rapid decrease in uh, in response time. So that's good. You want a shorter response time. And I think the it, whatever the opposite of a peak is, the lowest uh, <laughs> time it was over a year's year basis was, I think, in 2018, 2017, right around there, when it was down to about 10 days on average for all of their requests, which is really quite good. Unfortunately, in the past several years, uh, after Attorney General Call was elected, that has increased again. Now, COVID is definitely responsible for some of that, but the numbers were ticking up before COVID hit, too. Well, we could go on, but we've unfortunately come to the end of our time for this evening. I've been joined on the other end of the line, as always, by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Uh, Tom, thanks so much for joining me today. And uh, I guess, you know, we usually end with a call to our listeners. So I'll just say, hey, for me, get out and vote. Don't forget, if you don't ask, you won't know. But probably don't ask the attorney general. It might not be worth your time. It's Thursday, which means Nate Wiggyhout and Pat Hansberg get ready for a weekend of fishing. These past few weeks have seen beautiful fall weekends and chilly fall weekdays. This is Wisconsin, after all. How do fish feel about the drastic change? They break it down on this week's Fishy Business. Alrighty, I'm on the line now with Pat Hasberg over at the uh, DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Pat, how's the fishing been lately? We had a nice weekend last weekend. Oh, we sure did. It was beautiful. Uh, 75 and sunny, and uh, looks like this weekend, too, is going to be in the 60s and also beautiful weather. So uh, fishing's been great. People have been coming through the shop and reporting uh, some good success. It's been nice and cold during the weeks here, but at least the weekends are nice. At least we can uh, get get out and be able to do a little bit of fishing. So so let's just start, you know, going right down the line, starting with uh, Mendota. What's been happening there in the last week? Well, the water temps have cooled down. The lake's turned over. We talked about that last week, and the fishing has just continued to improve, uh, especially for shore anglers. Um, the, the, a lot of the fish are, are moving up shallow this time of year, so... Some good walleye action from Tenney Park, the Warner Park break wall, uh, the University shoreline has all been good uh, for, for shore anglers. Uh, so, and good walleye and bass, but also um, the pike action on Mendota has really started to pick up. I've been hearing about uh, lots of good numbers of pike, but also uh, quite a few fish coming out uh, in that 40 inch range. So, some real trophies. And so now all this nice weather, that, that's good for us. But what about for the fish? How, how you know, when we have like these uh, nice, super cold weeks and then few days of like pretty nice weather, uh, how, how does that sort of affect the fish bite? Well, a lot of people think that it might shut the fishing down because it's, you know, kind of a drastic change when you're talking about 60 degrees from maybe a 40 degree high during the week. Um, but actually, the fish are just so focused right now on getting ready for winter that they seem to be in, in a great mood and, uh, you know, just, uh, ready to be caught. See, that's what I always heard growing up is that when you have those nice days and a stretch of, of, uh, a cold weather, you know, it's good for, for us fishermen, but it's, it's not so great for the fish. So it's nice to know that that's uh, not necessarily, uh, true there. So, uh, continuing on, let's look over at Lake Monona. What's been happening there? Well, I've been hearing about uh, some great uh, walleye catches recently, some not really nice fish uh, 
coming along the um, from from the Monona Terrace area and over on the uh, east side of the lake. Some some great walleyes coming out of there even during the middle of the day. Uh, the panfish bite has continued to improve. The Monona Terrace uh, wall over there ha- has been good, and fish are uh, panfish are starting to move into the triangles area there off John Nolan and into the Brittingham Park area in Monona Bay. Um, but I, always this time of year, the biggest news is uh, with the musky anglers out there. Um, th- those fish, um, it's a world-class musky fishery on Lake Monona, and those fish have been hungry. And um, a lot of folks coming in, coming through here buying our uh, large musky-sized suckers. Those are um, 12 to 14-inch suckers that they're using for bait. And the fish that eat those are obviously going to be pretty big. So I've um, been hearing a lot of great catches about uh, on some Nice muskies coming out of Lake Monona lately. Now, how about Wabisa? What's been happening there? I know there's a lot of muskies in there, too. That's right. Same thing down there. The muskie bite's been fantastic. Also, the perch and bluegill bite down there has been really good on the weed line and then uh, even in the weeds. So uh, some good numbers of uh, decent-sized bluegills, but also some really nice perch uh, mixed in with those fish. So Wabisa's been uh, fishing really well lately. So obviously, both Monona and Wabisa—they're—they're uh, they're both the the big musky areas here in the Madison area. What what sort of sets them apart? It, does anything really set them apart? Do you do you fish those any differently uh, depending on which one you go to? Uh, no, not really. It's um, they're they're connected by the Ohara River, and the the thing that separates Monona from Mendota literally is the Tenney Park Lock and Dam, so we don't get muskies up in Mendota. Uh, that's not to say there aren't muskies in there. They're, they're more of like kind of a unicorn whenever you hear about somebody catching a muskie out of Mendota. But um, as far as Monona and Wabisa, they're essentially the same lake, same water flowing through there. So uh, a lot of the same ta- tactics work on, on both those bodies. And speaking of the Yahara there, what's, what's happening on that? Well, you know, it's... Uh, Great time of year to be uh, fishing dam areas. So if you, if, you know, the Stoughton area comes to mind. I know we've talked about that a few times, but, um, you know, a lot of fish backing up there at dams as they kind of migrate upstream looking for food. And um, it's it's just a, a, a great spot to lock into some walleyes, some good white bass action coming out of there, even some catfish backing up in those areas. Well, Pat, uh, that's uh, pretty much all we have here for today. Any uh, final fishing advice for the people out there? Well, I know I keep saying this, but uh, this could be the last nice weekend of weather that we have, so I, I just encourage folks to get out there and enjoy it while you can. I think if we just keep saying it, uh, the the <laughs> next weekend is just going to keep staying nice. So why don't we just keep saying it for now? Well, I've been uh, talking with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Uh, and if you want to hear an updated fishing report anytime that you want, uh, all you have to do, call one simple number, 608-BIG-FISH. Pat, thanks for talking and good luck out there. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Take care. It's 6.48 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
this is the last spooky episode, contributor Jennifer Fields plans to share in this Halloween season. But it's also the last haunted house the Smith family plans to build. The garage behind their house served to scare neighborhood children since their son Cooper was a wee lad. Cooper is off to college next year, and with that, the screaming will stop. In this episode of Radio Chipstone, it's the Smith's family's last haunt, and they're doing it for Theo. You guys want to go inside? I'm not going, but you guys can go. It's the last yeah. Dane Street haunted house. It is. Ever, probably, you know, maybe maybe down the line, but we've been doing this. This is our ninth haunted house. We've been doing it since I was like seven or eight uh, in third grade, I think was the first one. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to college, so it's, it's, it's the last one. It is the last one. We've made a lot of advances. I love it on many levels. Yeah. And I'll also be quite excited on many levels next year when I don't do it. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a big project. It's an October commitment. <laughs> yeah, right? like it's what we do in October. Yeah, Melanie took off this whole week. I did. I, yeah, I took off Wednesday, Thursday, Friday to prep for this. We've been working on this weekends. Yeah, you guys won't let me take off school, but no. uh, it's just I don't know. Maybe. So, so then. From looking from the outside in, and I don't want to go in because I'm going to be here on Saturday. And I always think, oh, this is how scary could be. Really scary. (laughs) Really scary is the answer. (laughs) So, Cooper, talk to me about, you've talked about it being the last one. It is, yeah. How are you not only processing that emotionally and mentally, but how are you going to show that through what you've got going on in this particular haunt? Uh, it's definitely surreal that it's the last one. Um, yeah, processing it emotionally and mentally, I don't think I will until it's over. Like, I'm still just like, oh, we're setting up the haunted house. It's just another year. It's physically the biggest one we've ever done. We just keep finding ways to, like, stretch out the area around our house and our in, in, in our garage to make it bigger than ever. Definitely the scariest props, like, you know, Spirit Halloween, if you're looking to get some good props, that's where we've gotten a lot new animatronics this year, so... A lot of new good things. Last year was like kind of a mad dash. We started a little late last year. Mm -hmm. So we really, we made a very concerted effort to start early this year. So we took, there was a lot of good planning time. And I'm really, really happy with how it's coming together. So I, it's 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 gonna be the best one ever. What's the planning like, Melanie? How, is it on paper? Do you draft it out, or do you just sit around the table and shout out ideas? I think we're past the point where we draft it out. I think we each have strengths and weaknesses. Yes. So I would say I am the project manager of this event at this point in time, and it'll be like, okay, you guys, you need to figure out the layout of what it's gonna go this year. And that's something you can do. You need to do lighting. You need to do this. And then I'll come in and be like, okay, I'll come in with a credit card and be like, we're going to need all these things to make this happen. But I think, you know, for all of us, and I said to Brendan today, what am I going to do next year that's creative like this? Like, I love the zhuzhing it up and being like, I'm going to hot glue this spider on here and make it look amazing. So I'm going to need something like that when it's gone, too. So, Brendan, how are you processing? Are you going to need something next year when it's gone? Or are you just kind of like, whew? It'll be strange not to have this huge project uh, that consumes many weekends and, and this full week, pretty much. I think it'll be a combination of there's something missing, a feeling that there's something missing and of relief. Just 
we could do whatever. We right, don't have to. Hiking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's yeah. go watch a movie. Let's do something fun instead of hanging up sheet after sheet of landscaping fabric to make walls. Yeah, to make false walls in a garage in a 300 square foot garage. It it gets tight in there sometimes. Like we really make the most of the space. So it's like. Yeah. But that's that's adds to the spookiness because you oh, yeah. do feel there's this. It's a claustrophobic. But yet there's room for something to jump out at you kind of thing going on. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. Like, it's it's crazy when my friends would, like, see our garage the other 11 months of the year. And they'll be right. like, you, how did you do, like, how did you maximize the space? But we, that that's the, that's really the first step in planning is we take, we take everything out of the garage. We, uh, we clean it. And it's just like, how can we use this? space to the fullest and i would say that's also like a sad moment for me or it will be sad on saturday is not just cooper but all these other kids that i've known from the time where it was just a table with bones on it yeah (laughs) like first year was so spoopy like right right, very spoopy at that moment yeah like going forward to where like east also has a soccer game on saturday so those kids are like oh my god i can't be there till nine o'clock you know that's it's it's turned into something that's a party for us a party for adults the haunted house but also for those kids too like that's been part of their whole life has there been any conversation about something happening next year yeah maybe like a party you know not the haunted house but maybe it's an adult party we still have sangria you know we have fire pits but not all the work that goes along with it so much work like people don't understand really how much my friends are like oh do you need help setting up this i'm like no like it's all done by today like so much of the like it would like, take you longer, Cooper, to tell them what to do than it would yeah, for you to do it. it. It would. And, like, especially, like, I'm lucky that I have a great relationship with my parents. We could talk about this for a while. But, like, um, <laughs> like we do work pretty well together we for the most part. So yeah. it's just, like, we're all able to, able to kind of do our own thing and just get it just get it done. Well, there's something you said last time I interviewed you guys about this, Brendan, that you're a team, which goes a long way in, in not only just producing something like this, but producing, you know, a person who would want to do this. Right. You don't yeah. have to do this. You've done it because you love it. I do love it. <laughs> I, I, I'd say it's like 70% love and 30% like obligation right. to the name, to everybody that's like, all right, I can have it next year. No, but it's really, it's really fun. It's like every year it's like, it almost seems impossible. Like the first day when we're just like, I'm just putting up like sheets of landscape fabric and I'm just like, what, are, what are we doing? Like, is, are we able to do this again? And then by, like now I'm like, this is going to be, this is going to be great. So when does it make that turn? Is it the last sheet of fabric and the first animatronic goes in? When does it make that turn for you guys that, okay, this is a haunted house. It's on the right track. I feel like about oh, two weeks ago, maybe like it gets to the point where we start placing stuff Yeah. and it's complicated because you also have things that you put in your garage. Right. Yeah. And we're very fortunate that our neighbor across the street will take our garage things and put them in her garage. Just so, because so awesome. Previously, we would wait until like the last day to do a lot of stuff because we had like a lawnmower and you know a weed whacker and all these things. But the past two or three years, I would say a week or two out, we could see what's happening. Yeah, especially like I'd say since like Monday this week, Monday or Tuesday, when like things just th- I don't. It's harder to describe, but things just come together. It's like this is what we thought this was gonna be, and it's. I think for me it starts earlier 
And I am I can be unreasonably optimistic at times. No. Yes. Brendan, you <laughs> But for me it becomes real when uh, Melanie and Cooper started talking about the things I thought we'd do this this year and I guess in the back of my mind, you know, I always know that we're going to do something new and different, but when they start talking about we're going to do this, we're going to have an alleyway, we're going to take the clip the clematis and hang it over and drape it down, yeah. and we're going to have uh, this jump out here, and we're going to switch this around, then I can see it, and the doing it, yeah, the doing it is doing it, but I can see it already, and that's for me, that's when it really takes off. And even I would say when we're doing it, even today, I have to walk through it like I'm walking through it like you and be like, okay, I'm walking through it like you. This is what I want it to look like. Yeah. But this is the last one, so it there is. has it to is. be some sort of, it's bittersweet. I mean, it going is. off to college is an amazing thing. You're going to have a lot of fun. Get ready. Yeah, going to college is crazy. I mean, I'm trying to take all this stuff in. Just trying to take it in. Like, I'm not trying to w worry about it necessarily too much. Like, I'm accepting that this is the last one, you know. And But it's it's just like we're, we're just doing another haunted house. It just, it just happens to be the last one. So I think our kids are also in an interesting position just because of COVID, right? Mm. So they had a period of time where they couldn't do those things. Yeah. And then maybe came back to school and their grateful level shot through the roof. Because those things didn't exist for, like for a, a year. year, you know. Yeah. So I think they're in a better position to maybe really, like Cooper said, take it, take in senior year. Like, mm -hmm. what am I grateful for? Do I love this? And we're very fortunate that Cooper does love it. Like, yeah. he's had a great experience at East High School. Shout out East High School. Shout out East High School. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm, I'm grateful that you guys, you know, not only bankroll this but um but love love it as much as me and like we can do it's like a nice family activity it and it's nice to be able to like you know still like i don't know this is our like backpacking trip this is like our family thing this is what we do for w-o-r-t i'm jonifer fields i have one last anecdote that i think is pretty good it's the theo thing okay. which i would like to say yeah, yeah okay. so this kid you know theo shout out to theo love him his his mom his mom said, all right, um, I'm going to New York. I'm going to a trip on New York. You can either go to New York with me or go to this haunted house. And he chose to go to the haunted house this year. So the pre that was probably my biggest motivator this year. I was like, Theo, I love this kid. Like, he could have gone to New York City, but instead he's going to this neighborhood haunted house, which is just warms my heart. Um, so we got to make it. We, get, I have, we had to make it good. Do, do it for Theo. And that's a wrap for WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer was Aaron Ashley. Your reporter tonight was Seeger Gray. Special thanks to feature contributors Pat Hansberg, Jonah Chester, and Tom Kamenick, and Jonifer Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Wiggy helped produce this newscast. And Ms. Shali Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Hey, don't forget that you can listen to the local news as a podcast wherever you subscribe. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Good night.